Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. Today we join a conversation between Chris Carruth and Christina Stamatos as they discuss pedagogy, empathy, and structural racism. Awesome. I think my favorite part of this right now is that I'm showing up as an anonymous narwhal on the, <laughs> on the dock. <laughs> yes, you are. I think I'm- I didn't know that was an option, but- <laughs> You have a much better animal than I do. Uh, nothing against moose in general, but um, yeah. So um, my name is Chris Carruth. I'm an educator and uh, artist located in Boulder, Colorado, on the traditional territories of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute nations. Um, my colleague today is Christine Stamatis. Um, I would be happy to give an introduction if you'd like, Christina, or if you want to yourself, please, by all means. That's totally fine. I am a PhD candidate at CU Boulder um, and also a storyteller and teacher, um, I think are my primary designations at the moment. Uh, but I think a lot about storytelling and how people learn. Oh, fantastic. Um, it is a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Uh, you are a phenomenal educator, so it's, it's an honor and privilege to do this. Um, so in a lot of ways, we're kind of situating the conversation on the broader topics of the COVID-19 pandemic and as well as the greater awakening of higher education to the pandemic of structural racism right now and how these are pushing us to rethink not only how and where we engage with students, but what it also means to engage at just a more fundamental level, what education looks like. It's causing us to revisit these, these aspects. So for me, as an educator, something that's always been central in my pedagogy is relating to students and that is born from uh, empathy, um, understanding or at least attempting to understand where they're coming from. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind um, giving me your definition of what empathy is and uh, maybe even defining that in the context of the classroom as well. Sure. So I've actually been thinking a lot about empathy as the ways that we relate to each other at a fundamental level, um, specifically through our stories. So the ways we take up our lived experiences to try and understand others, even when we don't share those exact experiences. Um, I also think empathy has potentially a lot of problems because we tend to take it in education as a catch-all for, you should live in somebody else's shoes when really when we're talking about structural racism and larger structural issues that's impossible um but it's at its base i think of empathy as a way of navigating the world by listening to other people's stories yeah i like that and i like how you you started off by saying it's something that's impossible to really truly experience in someone else's lived experience but listen to their stories that word listen is such a powerful thing. Um, I think I learned on in my, my, my own educational career the value of listening as opposed to trying to talk and, and sometimes talking over students um, or at least just trying to hear myself speak, but creating that space and allowing them to feel comfortable to lean into that. Um, how is that happening online right now? Uh, given the shift that most institutions have made to be online for this fall 2020 semester and likely, fingers crossed for the opposite, but likely for spring 2021 as well. Is empathy in creating the same spaces for that? Do you see opportunities or challenges in the shift online? I mean, I think that traditionally, I have thought of empathy in my own classroom as being developed in face-to-face -face settings because eye contact and listening in between right to the things that people don't say is such an 
uh, important and essential part of relating um, and relating through compassion and that kind of critical relationship. So not, not making assumptions about people's experiences or ways of looking at the world. Um, but I do think that moving things online gives us this opportunity to pause both in considering new types of pedagogy and in thinking about everything just takes longer when you're online, right? There's a lag. And so that space actually has the potential to force us to listen in new and different ways. And um, I think as an educator, the thing that feels most important to me about that is, is recognizing that I'm not always the expert, especially as things start to shift. So we can go back to the idea of structural racism and recognizing that I identify as white and therefore do not have the kind of baseline experiences that people who have faced systemic racism do. I also have this opportunity to think about the ways that my students are bringing themselves into my class. And if I create space for that, whether we're online or in person, for me through storytelling, by allowing them to bring their stories into class, then it gives me this wider breadth of information, both about them and about the subjects we might be tackling in that everybody lives their experience in different ways. And when they get to be the expert, you have a really rich base of knowledge to draw from. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, I think just to riff off that for a second, there's, there's such an inherent value in it, that pause, that silence that you mentioned in terms of going online um, with revisiting um, our structures, Western structures of education and pedagogy in that silence of thinking of different ways of knowing, different ways of being, different ways of educating. That extends to those students in often marginalized populations. Um, one thing that I've noticed in this space too is certain students, when they're, whether they're working remotely on campus or from you know, places far flung with family members back home, they often are navigating a different technological environment and making the assumption that they can just jump online with some ease and access um, as if they were just coming to a classroom on campus is that is another moment for pause again thinking about the inequalities that a lot of our students face that directly feeds into their ability to tell stories uh, ability to create art and express themselves how they show up and where they show up um, you know education in so many ways can be a tool for it's, it's activism in a lot of ways. It can be a tool for decolonialism or looking at things in a different light. And I think with that pause in mind, again, this is, is a chance to do so. Um, are you seeing much in your, uh, in your, your research or literature or your implementation of um, different pedagogies right now along those lines? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I have been really drawn to, particularly when thinking about arts education, is thinking about um, asynchrony. So what can we do when we're not synchronous? And what does that mean for students? Um, I think when you're talking about different access to technology, requiring, requiring synchronous education can be really dangerous because it, in, it reinforces the inequities that I think we often see in educational spaces, um, frankly, particularly at the college and university level when people are less aware that students have less access. Um, but I, I think a lot about what it means, what it means to meet together, what it means to meet, um, to, to build collective knowledge, and whether that can be done in a way that doesn't require everybody to be online at the same time. And I believe that it can, again, particularly when we're talking about the arts, I think that we again have this space 
that allows for a kind of reflection that is often lost in classrooms, particularly in the university classrooms that you and I have frequented. And by creating asynchronous spaces where young people are asked to do some creating of their own, we get we get a different kind of collective knowledge. I don't entirely know what that means, but the possibilities really excite me in terms of using um, using tools that allow us to communicate from afar without requiring everyone to be online at the same time. Yeah, that's a really fascinating answer. And I like what you're saying about the asynchronicity and the benefit therein. Um, there is a value, of course, I think any educator would agree with the value of everyone meeting having contact hours, if you will, like we had traditionally up until this latest um, last spring semester. But right now, again, with the challenges and opportunities of it, asynchronicity leaning into that. And at least in my experience, having students break down into smaller groups, not necessarily just think uh, pair share or pairing off, but smaller subgroups of the course to discuss materials in a synchronous, uh, asynchronous setting, that is, and come back to the greater uh, class as a whole. Um, mm -hmm. So many ways with critiques in mind in those small groups or otherwise. One thing I found too is even revisiting the notion of what a critique is. I mean, that is in so many ways also steeped in, in a Western tradition. And there's nothing necessarily that's wrong with that. But if we're looking at models of education with structural racism in mind and challenging what those systems are, backing away from that word, um, critique often has a negative connotation to it. And it's separate from being critical, right? Being critical and critique are two separate words, even if the root is the same. But the end goal is to have an honest engagement with students. And I'm finding that to be very troubling, especially when the, the practice is more materials-based, like say ceramics or painting. If it's in a new media, digital space, photography, it's a little bit easier to look at those kinds of materials. But we can still find a method of, or measures of engagement with students online uh, that gets away from critique getting into more of an a fluid conversation that's what I, I guess what i'm trying to drive at is that this is one of the benefits that i found with the online medium is it is allowing for those converse, conversations to be extended the space that you alluded to earlier it allows for instead of just a, a five minute critique and on to the next student and it's kind of very brusque and uh, brisk i'm sorry and and heavy and rushed it allows for some more of that space and things to ruminate in i'm finding that to be a real key benefit and something that i'm hoping that um, not just in my classes but institutionally and maybe even systemically we take lessons from this moving forward the value of that space leaning into that yeah you're you're making me think of something that's half-baked but i'm hoping you can <laughs> help me clarify you're so good at doing that um so we've been doing this for years, right? Regardless of the fact that most of our classes have historically met in person, um, we in the arts, and my arts are a little bit different than yours, I tend to draw from music and writing more than the visual arts, but I think that the idea of critique that you're talking about is very similar. Um, but we're always drawing on a historical narrative that's sort of uh, spans and frames the ways that we critique others. And so there's something about the time scale allowed by digital reflection and digital conversation, asynchronicity, that I think actually mirrors what we do in terms of drawing from ideas that have like different kinds of histories. And so I think specifically of jazz and this idea of like, is it appropriation or are we doing the work to actually um, quote and 
take on the perspectives of artists that came before us. And there's something about meeting online that actually allows us to do that with each other's work and to validate each other's work yeah. rather than just critique. Um, yeah, I like yeah. that. I would, I would love for you to clarify that because that <laughs> is something I've never thought about before, but I'm kind of excited about. <laughs> yeah, I may let that sit for a second, but I like the idea of what you're saying against some of the, um, the promises inside of that and the, the, the notion of... Well, I mean, let's see if I can clarify that a little bit. Playing, playing jazz, right? Mm -hmm. hmm. We can go to the arts, right? Like the Guggenheim is often set up so that you can look around and see an artist's progression over time. Sure. I think that when we're doing in-person critique of one another's art or of our students' art, that some of that progression over time goes away. Right, like it's harder to see when you're focused on a singular piece. And one of the things that I think the digital format possibly gives us back is the ability to look across time in new ways. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is kind of riffing off of Guggenheim for a second, but that the layout of that infrastructure, as I understand it, the architecture that is, I mean, it's it's a very non-Western. It's almost non-linear in the sense of this circular kind of uh, a progression, right? It's meant to challenge the ways that we often literally look at um, art. Here's one piece, I'm gonna move forward to the next piece and so on and so forth. So inherently it's challenging the structures that have been at play for a long time. And I think if I'm hearing you right, and sort of playing jazz with digital, um, the digital environment that we're navigating right now, there's new opportunities, new instrumentation, if you will, that can come from that. Um, different kinds of pauses and silence that we can lean into. I think at face value, like I mentioned earlier, I think you've, you'd be hard pressed to find educators that say an asynchronous environment is beneficial to a synchronous one, whether it's online or in person. But in that, since that is the reality, there are benefits to that. This pause, if you will, that silence, which I think is so undervalued, um, what, what happens in that silence is not um, a dearth of activity, but actually I think that's the wellspring of true rumination and true feedback. That's listening in so many ways. Um, right. So, yeah, it's almost, to use another musical phrase, we're going to stretch these metaphors. Uh, it's a, a part of, it's staccato in a way, right? Um, there's a halt, but it leads to something more, and then there's another pause, and it's a part of the, the dance, the music, so... Um, why do you, this is kind of a, it's in the same vein or extending from this conversation, but why do you think some of these, these notions and the general revisiting of just good pedagogy or even different pedagogy, good or bad aside, but different methods of teaching, it's definitely coming back to the forefront of, uh, education right now. But why do you think good pedagogy in this sense or revisiting pedagogical techniques has not been so, um, widely Accept it isn't the right word, but uh, on the minds of a lot of educators until it takes this rapid sea change. Um, shouldn't good things be happening all along, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Well, so I guess it depends on who, who and in which discipline you're talking to, because I would argue that <laughs> K-12 educators think about this constantly. Sure. Uh, sure. And it's mostly <laughs> folks at the university who have ignored pedagogical conversations. Um, <laughs> Yes. You know, some. This is like you your education in a higher ed, right? <laughs> yes, well said about KB12. <laughs> uh, I, I think that we, we've been functioning in a very um, Eurocentric, white centric notion of what it means to educate. Mm 
And I think when things are disrupted, as they have been both because of the pandemic and because of um, institutional racism coming to the the forefront of our conversations through things like Black Lives Matter and the killing of so many Black people unnecessarily, obviously. Um, I guess I feel like we're at a tipping point where if we don't start questioning our pedagogy, we become obsolete. Like, what we're doing is not only no longer working because of the format we've been forced into, but it's actually racist often. Mm. Right? Like we were talking about, it's not just access to tools, but it's ways of thinking. We in the university setting often assume that students come in with a certain mindset and way of approaching whatever subject we're teaching. And I think that um, these social movements and situations have sort of laid bare the fact that that's not the case and that there are other ways to do things. And as educators, I think that everyone actually who is in education does want to also learn. And so when you see something is not working, I, in believing the best of people, I believe that then the natural inclination is to start questioning what you're doing and seeing whether or not there's a better way to do it. Um, so I guess that would be yeah. my reply on why pedagogy is shifting. I don't know. What is what have you been seeing in your departments? Well, well, gratefully, these conversations are happening, but it also feels like they're happening because of the urgency of moving online. Um, it feels reactionary as opposed to transformative. And I, I don't want to say it's performative because I don't think that's the case. I think it's forcing people to review a lot of, of, of their just built up ideas on what it means to teach, what it means to educate not just the content, I think most educators feel very solid on the content front, but it's how, how that content is delivered. And again, that's not just taking things online because arguably that's the easier of the two issues. It's the, um, the equality and the racial component that's harder. And that's the one that a lot of people I think are grappling with right now, at least from, from what I'm seeing. And that is trying to change their, you know, not just lesson plan, but curricular design, the horizontal and vertical integration with courses across institutions, how we can, to go back to the phrase, the big phrase, decolonialize, um, decolonialize curricula, introduce new authors, those new ways of thinking. Um, you know, I think this is maybe a little bit more um, metaphorical than it, and it needs to be, but the reality is, you know, we're in this grim labyrinth where we both play, a lot of educators that is, we're in a grim labyrinth where we both play uh, Theseus and the Minotaur this sort of nightmare drama. And there has to be this internal bearing witness of our own role in this sort of social hell, if you will, that most people often would rather not engage in, and that includes educators. So it, it, there's a humbleness and a vulnerability that we have to create the space for ourselves. And if we don't do that for ourselves, then it doesn't extend to our departments, and it certainly is not going to extend to students. So I'm referring to that in the sense of we have to come to grips and grapple with our own part as educators in a in the systemic racism um what part we play in that as well um you know the the personal ends up being political in this stance we're all part of the system if you will um and that's across racial ethnic and gender lines we all have um certain roles to play in our playing that whether we want to or not willingly or otherwise and recognizing that um i think that's been a welcome conversation that's happening across the social space and including education yeah i i wonder too if um 
if there's not a a hopeful way of thinking about it as in mm. like to to do nothing <laughs> is is actually the problem so i think um mm. not to i think as people in higher ed specifically start to reckon as you're saying with their own role in the systems of oppression that we live in um we're we're also being forced to think about what it looks like to have compassion for ourselves and others. And so if we go back to the idea of empathy, um, the traditional model of education, the like uh, banking model, as yes. Frere would say, I suppose, is, is what many professors, I think, still rely on because it's what they know. Sure. But it doesn't leave much room for empathy or compassion. And in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of um like a, a reckoning with white supremacy in the midst of looking and really reflecting on the inequities that have been caused by capital capitalism i think we're also being forced to question like our our pedagogy and what it means to have empathy for ourselves and our students and our colleagues in these settings um and I'm curious because I I hope that's not just online, right? I hope we're not just doing that because like we miss seeing each other face to face and having arguments face to face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think like as scary as the world is right now, we also have this rich opportunity to really think about what we want for education. What is it that we're hoping to gain sure. in the next? I mean, and. Our generation, frankly, gets to shape some of that. I think we're both on the cusp of becoming lifetime educators <laughs> at this level. And so thinking about like, what is it that we want to perpetuate and what are we willing to slip off and get rid of? Um, uh, yes. it's, it's a pretty rich time for that as well, um, because we have this opportunity to change things as everything's in unrest. Yeah, you've got me thinking about, this is a horrible paraphrasing from James Baldwin, but he's got this line about compassion, compassion, the void collapses. And when you're talking about empathy and how, um, yes, we definitely need to have that externally focused, but there's a component of that that needs to be internally focused as well. This goes back to what I was trying to say, maybe a bit inarticulately, but having the, the humility and the vulnerability to look at our own role in these systems, educational or otherwise, um, that doesn't mean that we're, that's, we're bad people. It doesn't mean anything that's, um, you know, we're not pointing fingers and saying that you are a horrible individual and you're part of this, uh, you're just a cog in some machine kind of a thing. It's more owning and accepting the reality of the situation. And that does mean pushing back against, you know, these systems of white supremacy and other ways that have enculturated us to think certain ways. And education has been a part of that. So having compassion for that journey, because it does take a lot of work. And that compassion, if it doesn't include ourselves, is not full. It needs to include that component. Um, I mean, in so many ways, it's, it's a lifetime's worth of work, right? <laughs> All of it. It's, it's another aspect of education, self-education. So, um, yeah, I think I know we're kind of going off in this interesting direction. I'm really enjoying this, Christina, so thank you for that. Um, I've got like one last question. I think we can close on this one. But if, if you could think, given the current landscapes that we've uh, touched on today, what kind of advice would you give a younger educator entering this space, someone who's beginning their doctoral journey, or even yourself uh, when you had started this, if you could talk to yourself from a few years back. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I 
don't do it. Um, <laughs> no, I well, okay. So in, in all seriousness, I think that higher education has often been placed on a pedestal. I certainly did when I was entering this field. And I think that that is a little misguided. I would love to go back and let my younger self know that teaching in a secondary school setting, actually I was doing as much if not more good for the world in reckoning with some of these same issues with young people who are you know, coming up now in the college system that I am also working in. Um, but I think, I think there's a, a lot of issue around trust when young educators come into the university either to start their their PhD programs or um, as assistant professors and postdoctorals, you know, collaborators. I think I think that what I'm finding is um, our knowledge is valuable, right? And it's not always right. But the the experience, like the lived experience that we we've gone through to get there, is actually of value, if for no other reason to, than to help us understand how we are complicit in these systems that you're talking about. And I think if I could do anything for myself as a younger scholar, it would it would be to disarm the notion of racism, because I think we have such a charge around being called out for perspectives that we have been indoctrinated into, that we never actually give ourselves the opportunities to work through those and to move beyond them. It takes a lot of work. Um, but the less we fight against doing that work, the more valuable our scholarship can be and the better we can be for our students. And so I think that's part of it for me is reckoning with like not liking the system and then recognizing I'm I'm complicit and then also going beyond that to recognize that there's something I can do about that in order to move forward. Oh my gosh, so beautifully said. Um, well, we have this recorded, so if you want to listen to this in four or five years, <laughs> maybe it will still hold water then. Uh, I think it will. Um, sure. okay. Yeah, um, yeah, thank you for your time. This has been a lovely conversation, ranging and uh, deep in many places. So thank you for your time, Christine. Thank you. So good to see you. You as well.